We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Mouse and welcome back to my channel. In today's video, we're going to be discussing a Swedish case that was actually requested by one of you over on my website, requestacase.com. If you have any case suggestions, then feel free to pop over to requestacase.com and send your submissions in there. I'd just like to point out this video has not been made to cause disrespect or anything like that. It's just been made to spread awareness about this case by compiling information from various different public sources on the internet. Any theories discussed in this video are just that, theories. They are not facts. They do not necessarily represent the views of myself or any of the investigators or anybody involved in this case, unless otherwise said or noted. Today's case is a solved case, so there isn't any theories really at all, um, but with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. This is the curious case of Engla Junkusa Erglund. A 10-year-old girl goes missing on the short bicycle ride back from soccer practice to her home in Sweden. A photographer who wanted to try out their brand new digital camera comes forward with pictures of the 10-year-old girl moments before she went missing. The police notice something very suspicious in the background of the photographs that give the investigators the big break they were hoping and praying for. On Saturday the 5th of April 2008, 10-year-old Engla Jokosa Hunglund was playing soccer with her friends on a local soccer field in, honestly I don't know how you pronounce this name, I tried asking my friend and I just, I'm not even going to attempt it so I'll just put it on the screen now. It's a village in Sweden. Engla had actually spoken to her mother several times on the phone that day just giving general updates as to what she was doing and where she was going and when she was coming home. At around 2pm on the 5th of April, Engla phones her mother and let her mother know that she is setting off on the 5km bicycle ride from the soccer field back home and she was coming home ready for tea and it shouldn't take longer than maybe 20 minutes. I believe the ride was just along a road and it was not hilly or anything, it was just a flat ride home which means that Engla should have got home fairly quickly. It was a journey that she made all the time. However, when Engla didn't arrive home half an hour after making that phone call, her mother, Karina, grew extremely worried. Karina tried to call Engler's phone, however, her attempts were fruitless. It was to no avail. I'm unsure whether the phone actually rang through and went to voicemail, whether the phone didn't ring at all and went straight to voicemail. I couldn't find anything that pinpointed exactly 
whether the phone was still powered on or whether it still had service when Corinna first phoned her daughter. Whatever the case, Corinna was extremely, extremely worried for her 10-year-old daughter. She immediately decided to contact the police and inform them that her daughter had gone missing on a bicycle ride and before the authorities had even begun to organize an official search party for the missing 10-year-old, Corinna had already began searching the surrounding areas like any good mother would. She formed her own search party of her family and her family friends and braved the woods to try and find her missing daughter. I'm sure any parents watching this video would do the exact same thing if their son or daughter went missing. On Corinna's initial searches before the police had even joined the search party, Corinna actually found Engler's bicycle and she found this bike about 500 meters away from home in the woods. The bike had seemingly been tossed from the road and abandoned with no sign of Angler anywhere. Obviously Corinna called the police and told them what she found and the police were quick to come to the scene. Police examined the scene surrounding the discarded bike and discovered tire tracks and forensic teams quickly began to take photographs and took a cast of the tracks. Forensics would typically then compare the tread of the tire tracks to an internal database of up-to-date tire tracks and the tire makers. This way they would be able to link that particular tire to a specific make or brand of car, and that could aid in their investigations. Now according to some sources, a cord track was also located which would indicate some kind of a rope use or a binding, but it couldn't be confirmed whether the track, this cord track, had been caused as a result of what had happened or whether it had been there for a while. There was nothing to say that it was linked, and actually after this point, this cord track wasn't mentioned again in this case but I thought it was still worth noting what the forensic teams found. The bicycle was carefully taken and sent to the forensics lab to undergo a full forensic examination to see if there's any DNA on the bike, to see you know, if there's anything that could point to where Angler might have gone. If Angler had thrown the bike herself, her fingerprints would be on the frame of the bike as she tried to you know, throw it into the woods. Saturday was beginning to draw to a close and Angler was still nowhere to be seen. The next day, on Sunday the 6th of April 2008, the police began to conduct their searches in the early hours of the morning. They started early, they knew they had a long day of searching ahead of them, and they had to be thorough. They actually enlisted the help of portable heat cameras to see if they could find any heat signatures in the surrounding woods, trying desperately to find any sign of Angler. Heat cameras or thermal cameras are commonly used when the police are tracking down a suspect. They can be used on helicopters and you can see them all the time on documentaries on television and those true crime um, police hunt kind of shows that you can get on TV where you can see the police chasing down a perpetrator with thermal imaging cameras. And it was those kind of cameras that the Swedish police employed in their search efforts for Angler. Now the police had two working theories by this point in this case. The first theory being that Angler had strayed from the path, she maybe got lost, maybe she saw something that spooked her so she ran into the woods, or maybe there was an animal, or something like that. Bear in mind she was a 10 year old girl and there'd be a lot that could frighten a 10 year old girl. And the second theory 
is that she had been taken. Angler's mum, Corinna, actually had a gut feeling from the offset that her 10-year-old daughter had been taken. After all, as Corinna would then later tell the media, how could a 10-year-old girl who wasn't particularly strong toss the bike into the woods in the manner that it was tossed into the woods. Now, I haven't seen any photographs of the scene of where the bike was found, um, but from the way that Corinna describes it, it seemed as if it had been th fully thrown from the road into the woods. Engler simply wouldn't have been strong enough to do this. She was a little girl. In the evening of the Sunday's searches, with no new evidence being discovered, the police brought in dogs to see if they could find a scent trail. However, this too was sadly to no avail. A helicopter was also deployed, which had a mounted thermal camera so that they could scan the woods from the sky, which would be a lot quicker than using the ground thermal cameras. However, this too, like the dogs, yielded no results. Several tips actually began to flood in to the police on the tip hotline. However, according to most sources, the majority of these tips were not particularly notable or particularly um, important in this case. It was mainly just some suspicious characters that they had seen around or things like that. Simultaneously to these massive search efforts that the police were investing a lot of resources into, the police set up a second team and this second team was to investigate the theory that something much more sinister had actually occurred to Engler that she had been kidnapped. The team brought in Angler's entire family and all the friends that had been playing soccer with her for questioning in relation to Angler's disappearance. Now, notably, they were actually unable to locate Angler's father, who apparently lived in Spain. They were trying to make contact with him in these initial days, but any contact was not made. They couldn't get a hold of him. This second team then put out an appeal for any further information from the public. They were really trying to push this tip-off hotline. They wanted to know if anyone had seen or come into contact with Angler since she left the soccer field um, on her journey down the road. There would have been people driving up and down the road, so somebody would have seen something. And just by some miracle, somebody had seen something. And it gets even better, this person hadn't only seen something, they also had evidence of what they saw. A photographer had actually gone we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. On, on a walk that Saturday afternoon to test out their brand new digital camera and so that they could get used to the new settings of the device. And about 600 meters away from where the abandoned bicycle was found, 
This photographer took a series of photographs that would mean a massive break for investigators in this case. The photographer, after hearing about the missing girl on the news, checked his camera and his SD card and saw that he had actually taken a picture of a little girl that matched the description of Engler at the same time that she had been cycling through the area. The photographer went straight to the police with the camera and the images and honestly the pictures themselves, knowing what happened is chilling. I'm going to show you on screen now the last known image of Engler before her disappearance. As you can see, Engler is happily riding her bike down the road, making her way home. Now this image was reportedly taken at 2.16pm that Saturday afternoon and nothing really seems amiss. However, not even a minute later, the photographer took a second photograph which would actually be pinnacle to this case. Now this second photograph wasn't of Engler, it was of something else, a vehicle. A suspicious vehicle. And this photograph taken at 2.17pm was a picture of a red Saab 900. Now the photographer actually recounted to the police how it seemed like the red car was almost following the girl and it wasn't really going the normal speed a car would down that road. The photographer at the time just passed that off as the car driver being cautious of the girl riding her bike down the road, not wanting to accidentally spook the girl or make her fall off the bike, you know, just being careful and respectful of the cyclist. Now, according to some sources, the tire track prints that were taken from the scene of Engler's bike actually matched with tires that would be found typically on a Saab 900. Team 2 in this case had begun to make some significant progress in the investigation. Now the searching team, a team we'll call Team 1, which was a much bigger team than Team 2, made the decision to continue the wide-scale search for Engler into Monday the 7th of April 2008. However, if they found nothing by 3pm on that Monday, they would come back together, congregate, and try and make a decision on where to go next, because if they hadn't found anything by then, almost three days after Engler went missing, what was there to find? Investigators actually attempted to ping Engler's mobile phone to see if they could trace it to a specific location. However, they were unable to ping the phone. Police were unsure whether the phone itself had maybe run out of power or whether it had simply had no signal due to bad weather conditions at the time. The bad weather conditions at the time also made it imperative that the investigators and the search parties found Engler before it was too late. We're talking nighttime sub-zero temperatures. The team working on the theory that something much more sinister had taken place began going through the sexual offenders registry to see who was in the area, which was standard procedure in a missing young person's case, especially a missing kid's case. And they went through this list and began to eliminate each of the offenders one by one, which would be a very long, painstaking process. In the morning of Monday the 7th of April 2008, the village of, I can't pronounce the name, 
was seemingly deserted. If you drove into the village, you would see nobody around. And that's because everybody in the village had gathered at the villagers' people's house to see what they could do to aid the investigation and to give a helping hand. Everybody in the village did their best and tried their hardest to aid in the investigation and the search efforts. Now, if you're not familiar with what a people's house is, I'm gonna explain it for you real quickly now. According to wikipedia.org, people's houses were originally leisure and cultural centers built with the intention of making art and culture appreciation, making those kind of things available to working classes. The first establishment of this type actually appeared in the Russian Empire in 1882, and soon people's houses became popular in England, Scotland, Turkey, and other European states. Now, the people's house over time would begin to evolve more into a community center or kind of like a village hall. And it was here that 200 people gathered from across the village and the neighboring villages to see what they could do to help. Security was notably stepped up at the village school to protect all the children that were there. Overall, the search parties searched an area that was 25 kilometers in size, which is a massive area to be searching, especially when it's wooded. They were trying to find anything that could lead them to Angler. They actually located during the search several items of clothing and artifacts, including a jacket and what I believe was a candy cane. However, it was quickly established that none of these items actually were connected to Angler. The police had still, by that Monday, not been able to get hold of Angler father who like I said lived in Spain. They wanted to question him and talk to him about his daughter but they didn't suspect him having any involvement in the case. In fact, as it will later turn out, Engler's father was actually in Canada at the time that Engler went missing. While Team 1 was busy continuing their search efforts, Team 2 made yet another advancement in their investigation. They discovered that a sexual offender on the registry actually owned a red Saab 900 car, similar to the one captured on camera by the photographer. Further to this, when they compared the two vehicles. The number plate in the image and the number plate of the car they had found at the offender's address actually matched. Now, I'm not sure whether the police had the immediate digital capabilities of running the plates of the car in the photograph um, to see who the owner was or whether that was a long process in 2008. Perhaps car ownership details weren't digitized or it wasn't an easy database to search through or perhaps the car wasn't registered in his name or something like that. But whatever the fact, the number plate in the picture matched the car that was found at this offender's address. The offender they arrested was 42-year-old Anders Eklund. They actually only initially arrested him for being reasonably suspected of human trafficking charges, which is in Sweden the lowest degree of suspicion. And this actually allowed the police to cordon off a few areas by, I believe, either a river or a lake, which was near the property of this offender 
so that they could conduct searches, and they conducted these searches with a bunch of dogs. They wanted to determine whether there is any evidence at all connecting Anders to this missing girl's case. And I believe the area they cornered off, like I said, was by this guy's trailer. Now let's talk about who Anders was, what his criminal history was, and why it seems likely that, to the police, he was connected to this case. Anders Eklund was born on the 6th of August 1965 in a place called Torsaka, Sweden. Again, I'm really sorry if I butchered that pronunciation. And not much is actually known about his childhood, but what we do know is that when Anders was about 28 years old, he actually beat up a 21-year-old woman. He tried to strangle this woman to death before he sexually assaulted her in a park. He actually initially managed to get away with this crime and that meant that he was free to strike again, and he did two weeks later. This time he attacked and knocked out a 28-year-old woman in his hometown in Sweden. However, as Anders tried to drag her to a public toilet for reasons I'm guessing you can infer, she actually managed to fight back and she managed to evade this and escape from Anders. I'm not sure whether he was actually arrested or charged in connection to this assault. A lot of Anders' criminal history is actually very difficult to find reliable sources for, um, so I'm trying to give you the best I can. Now, just as a quick note, a family friend of Anders actually claims that Anders, when he's sober, is a very kind of a sociable but quite shy person, quite timid almost, but still can be sociable when he needs to be. However, when he drinks alcohol, he turns very weird and becomes a different person, according to his family friend. The next year, in 1995, Anders tries to strangle to death an extremely intoxicated 16-year-old girl. However, and thankfully, he failed to do so. Anders was subsequently arrested and sentenced to one year in prison, yeah that's right, just one year, for sexual assault charges. I can't believe he only got one year for attempting to sexually assault and strangle to death a 16 year old girl. Anders was then released in 1997 and it wouldn't be long before he would strike again. In 1998, Anders tried to force and coerce a 16 year old girl to engage in intercourse with him. And thankfully, his attempts to coerce this 16-year-old girl were unsuccessful. Now, in that same year, in 1998, Anders was actually arrested and charged for exposing himself and flashing himself in a public place. I'm not sure how long he was sentenced for, but it must have been about a year or a little bit longer. Um, but in the year 2000, he actually was arrested and sentenced again for exposing and flashing himself in a public bath. He was then also in the year 2000 found guilty on the charge, on two charges actually, of coercing uh, two minors into sexual acts. Again, I'm not sure how long he was actually sentenced for on these charges, but what we do know is that as a result of this very, all these very sexual charges, he was added to the Sexual Offenders Registry. Now, interestingly, Anders, who was 42 when he was arrested in connection to this case, actually owned a trailer, a older truck, and the Red Saab 900. And all of these vehicles were seized for forensic examination, his trailer was searched, his house was searched, 
and his garage was searched. The police were determined to find concrete evidence to link Anders to this case, because if they didn't find anything concrete, then they would have to legally let Anders walk free. Now, just because Anders' vehicle, which Anders actually confirmed and confessed was his vehicle in the photographs, was seen in the same area driving along the road at the same time that this 10 year old girl went missing isn't enough evidence to charge somebody uh, in relation to the case. It doesn't mean that he was responsible for Angler's disappearance. It wasn't concrete enough for any charges to be brought against Anders. They had to find something more damning and they had to find it fast. Investigating officers began to conduct digital forensic examinations of Anders' mobile phone, his laptop, and even the tachograph from his truck to try and determine where Anders had gone and how far he'd gone on the day that Engler went missing. For those of you who don't know what a tachograph is, according to wikipedia.org, a tachograph is a device fitted to a vehicle that automatically records its speed and distance. Together with the driver's activity selected from a choice of modes, the drive mode is activated automatically when the vehicle is in motion, and modern tachograph heads usually default to the other work modes uh, upon coming to a rest which means when the vehicle starts moving, this device will automatically begin logging, uh, begin logging where the car or the truck goes. The tachograph would provide a valuable insight to investigators for where exactly Anders went on the day Engler went missing. Now, interestingly, there had been reports to the police that a 12-year-old girl in the area that Engler went missing a few days prior to Engler's disappearance had actually been followed by a suspicious red car. Now, according to a police spokesperson, Anders actually categorically denied his involvement in Angus' appearance from the offset. He was interrogated multiple times about where he was going and what he was doing, but Anders' profession was a truck driver. He was a trucker, so it wasn't unnormal or irregular for him to be driving places all the time. No sign of Angler had been found by the search teams, and by this point on Tuesday the 8th of April 2008, it had been four days since the 10-year-old girl had gone missing. She would have had to survive with little to no food, little to no water, and little to no protection against the elements, against sub-zero night times with rough terrains for four days straight on her own. The police announced on the Tuesday morning that it was highly improbable that Angler, if she is in the woods, is alive any longer. The police were quickly beginning to put more and more resources into the team that was investigating the theory that something more sinister had taken place. They were desperately trying to find any concrete evidence that could link Anders to this case, and time was running out fast. A district's court made the decision that legally the investigating officers had to find concrete evidence that links him to the case so that he could be charged by midday of the Thursday. And that was the Thursday, the 10th of April, 2008, that they had to find this concrete information by before they had to legally set Anders free. The prosecutors didn't want to set a man free that they strongly suspected had some kind of involvement in this case. DNA samples were taken and tests were ordered by the authorities. However, 
these tests take a while to do. It takes a while for the laboratories to make the comparisons or to extract the DNA evidence. So the police weren't expecting results before the weekend, before at least Friday, which was one day after the time period had elapsed for them to find evidence against Anders. On Wednesday, the 9th of April, 2008, the police decided to throw all of their resources at going through all the information in the case, compiling the witness testimonies, all the tip-offs, following everything up, so they could find absolutely anything um, that could aid in prosecuting somebody in this case. The official police search parties were allegedly also called off, or at least they were minimized. Officers were taken away from the search parties so that they could throw more manpower at going through all the information they had. It is extremely important to note that hundreds of volunteers uh, continued their search efforts for Angler while the police were being taken away and investigating the more sinister theory. The police had one more day to find something to link Anders to this case, something concrete. And as a result of throwing all this manpower at all the different files in this case, they began to find cracks in Anders' testimony. They discovered a witness testimony that a red car that matched Anders' vehicle had been seen parking the car in the village the day Engler went missing. According to one source, this was actually captured on CCTV um, and it was in the car park of a petrol station, but that was only according to one source. I couldn't confirm it. Also, according to this source, Anders was very cheery. He smiled to the cashier when he paid for the petrol. He was a very, he seemed happy. And this witness testimony actually went completely against what Anders had said in his own testimony, where he said that he had simply just driven through the village on the way to a different destination and that he, you know, hadn't stopped at all. Now, I'm not sure if the tachograph data that they took from his car actually yielded any results and if it was wiped or if there was anything on this data. Um, I'm not really sure how a tachograph actually operates, whether it's stored on memory internally or whether I've seen on some images that on a tachograph it actually gives a readout. Um, on paper, so I'm unsure whether the police actually got anything useful from the tachograph because it's not actually mentioned again in this case, so I'm inclined to believe that the police didn't find anything of use from the tachograph. In an interesting move, the prosecutors actually arrested Anders on suspicion of human trafficking. Those were the charges, and those charges allowed them to hold Anders for a much longer period of time. The police had received over 1,000 different hip-hop um, of information in this case, all of which they had to follow up. They were throwing so many resources at this case. Crucially, the police were still trying to locate Angler's mobile phone, um, but that was to no avail. They couldn't ping it, they couldn't find any location of this phone. It was missing. Crucially, on this phone, there would be any data of text messages, see if she was talking to anybody, um, perhaps she had been groomed uh, via text or on the internet or something to that effect. This mobile phone was imperative that the police found it. But by the time the weekend came along, neither Engler's mobile phone 
or Engler had been found. A criminal hearing was then set for Anders on the Sunday afternoon, which was just over a week since Engler had gone missing. Now, interestingly, the investigators actually began to link the criminal profile in Engler's case to the criminal profiles of perpetrators in several unsolved murders in several different cold cases. Most notably, the unsolved murder of a 31-year-old woman in 2006 and the unsolved murder of a 31-year-old woman the same age in the year 2000. The authorities realized that the criminal profile of the perpetrator in Engler's case matched up almost to a T with the criminal profile of the perpetrators in all of these unsolved cases, but particularly these two cases. The police's cold case team then began to formulate a theory that the person who murdered the woman in the year 2000 had also been a trucker and had driven a truck. Very importantly, in the murder in the year 2000 of the 31-year-old woman, they had managed to collect DNA evidence of a male. So, it was important to the police, the cold case team, to get DNA from samples from Anders and send them off for a comparison to see, you know, whether their theory is correct, whether the whether he was involved. All the police needed now to move forward were the DNA results from the Swedish National Forensic Laboratory to determine whether there was any DNA evidence on the bicycle or to see whether Anders' DNA matched any of the DNA samples from any of the unsolved murders. Now, Sunday the 13th of April 2008, the day of the criminal hearing, that day would be a landslide in this case. The DNA test results for the comparison in the cold case files came back and the results of these tests were exactly what the cold case team were hoping for. The police were quick to present the heavily incriminating DNA evidence against Anders and began to interrogate him in connection to the murder of a 31-year-old woman called Penilla Helfren, which occurred in the year 2000. Anders then, in a surprise and shocking turn, confessed. He confessed to murdering the 31-year-old woman in the year 2000. And then he confessed to kidnapping and murdering 10-year-old Engler. Anders told the police investigators the location of Engler's remains. And the location of those remains was actually way outside of the area that the police had tried to search for Engler. Why did Anders do it? According to a few sources, Anders' reasons for attacking and assaulting these women and these minors and these children was simply because he never got any girls. The news that Engler's remains had been found hit the headlines, it was front page news, it was breaking news, and the entire nation of Sweden fell into a state of sadness and grief and sorrow for Engler and her family. Many members of the public were actually still holding on to the hope that perhaps Engler would be found alive, safe and well. Now, interestingly, I'm not really gonna talk much about this, but it was decided that Engler's funeral, the funeral of a 10-year-old girl, would be broadcast live on a primetime television network um, and that in itself was a very controversial move and it's heavily criticized and debated whether that was ethical or not but again i'm not going to talk too much on that just because that to me is just a bit strange anders was charged with two counts of murder two counts of sexual assault and several counts of possession of child indecent imagery 
was tried in court on the 18th of July 2008, and in a fairly short trial, was found guilty on all charges in August of 2008. Anders Eklund was then sentenced to life in prison on the 6th of October 2008. Now in June of 2014, Anders was actually assaulted by several other inmates in the prison that he was serving his sentence in, which resulted in him being sent to hospital. And it is believed that he was assaulted due to what he had done to these girls. And in my opinion, rightfully so. This case in itself is so tragic, heartbreaking, and thankfully, some justice was found. However, this case was almost textbook. A missing young girl, the culprit being a local sex offender who had a history of repeat offending. To me, there seems like there were so many opportunities for Anders to be flagged, and there were so many indications of repeat offending that this case could have been prevented. And the Swedish police themselves were not without tip-offs about Anders. They were actually tipped off about him. They were tipped off that Anders, a known sexual offender, may have had some involvement in the murder of the 31-year-old woman in the year 2000. And they'd been tipped off about this prior to Angler's abduction. In November of 2006, there were several tip-offs to suggest that Anders had been the perpetrator in the 31-year-old Penilla Helgreen's case. But despite the fact that Anders was a known sexual offender with a known criminal history of repeat offending, with a criminal history of sexually abusing women and young girls in the area where Penilla Helgreen was found deceased, the police ignored these tip-offs and didn't investigate them. I'm not one to typically dwell on the what-ifs, but if the police had taken these tip-offs seriously, this case may never have happened. If the DNA had been compared back in 2006 between Anders and this cold case, it would seem likely that Angler would still be alive today. And that's not where it ends. The police actually received a second tip-off the year before Angler's murdered with the same information connecting Anders to this cold case. But again, this wasn't investigated by the police. The police was then investigated by the attorney general after this whole case had taken place, but nobody was prosecuted and nobody was held responsible for the failings in following up these tip-offs. Nobody is held responsible for the negligence of duty. I've covered a lot of cases on my channel where police incompetence has actually affected the case or could have prevented a case or has hindered the investigation. It breaks my heart to see in so many cases that more could have been done. According to data from policeconduct.gov.uk, in 2016 and 2017 in the UK, there were 63,752 complaints made against the police force. 37% of these complaints alleged neglect or failure in duty. That's 23,588 separate complaints of police neglect or failure in duty within a two-year period, and that to me is insane and scary. More must be done to prevent police negligence and to keep that to a minimum. And sadly, one of the highest contributing factors to police neglect or incompetence is not the police officers themselves being neglectful, it's underfunding. Police officers are overworked, they are underfunded. How can they be expected to follow up these tip-offs if they have literally tens and tens and tens, sometimes even a hundred cases on their plate. Um, they don't have 
enough manpower or resources, and that blame falls on the people allocating the funding, our governments. Now, this case doesn't actually end here. In September of 2014, Anders was actually implicated in a third murder. And that was the murder of six-year-old Yasmina Yasara. Yasmina went missing on the 28th of July, 1997, the same year that Anders was released from prison. And she vanished without a trace, kind of in the same fashion as Angler did. An investigation actually showed that Anders had been located close to the crime scene of 396 different crimes, unsolved crimes. Anders was subsequently arrested in connection to this third case. However, after a two-year investigation on the 16th of July 2016, Anders was dismissed in connection to Yasmina's case due to the lack of substantial evidence. Whether Anders was actually involved in Yasmina's death or disappearance, is probably something that Anders will take to the grave with him. Last year in 2018, Engler's mother Karina was interviewed by a national newspaper. Karina still has so many questions surrounding her daughter's death. Questions she says she wants to meet with Anders and ask. Yes, I want to meet him and I've always wanted to. I have questions for him, but probably I'll never get the answers I want. There are puzzle pieces that do not match. I think he has lied about the course of events. People think I'm crazy, but I already feel the worst experience of pain possible. But he doesn't dare to meet me. He has answered no whenever I have asked. Shortly after the 10th anniversary of Engler's murder, Anders actually became legally eligible for parole. Corinna tells the press that the only people that have truly been served a life sentence in this case is her and her family. They're having to deal with the pain, the anguish and the grief until the grave. Earlier this year in 2019, thankfully Anders' request for parole was categorically denied by the parole board due to sufficient reason for him to repeat offend. And that's everything that we have for you in today's case. Thank you all so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case series. Don't forget to jump over to Instagram, hit that follow button so that you can take part in the next community voted case polls that I'll be doing very soon. So make sure you follow me on Instagram so you can take part in those. Like this video if you found it interesting and leave a comment down below telling me what you thought of this case. Again, I'm gonna be answering to comments on this case for the first couple of days. Um, I really wanna create a discussion around this. It's actually, this case really, really just broke my heart. Subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post a brand new true crime video. And with all that being said, I will see you in the next case. Didn't I pay, but you didn't